Our next speaker is Mr. Mick Wallace. Madness. madness. This is madness. We cannot fix a problem caused by capitalism with more capitalism. They hurt the people. I ended up at the end of a gun on three occasions. I don't want to survive anyway. Madame Daly will speak. A union which allows fiscal rules to be broken for arms expenditure, not for housing or to put roofs over the heads of people. This is evidence of police violence. Whether you're an economic migrant or you're an asylum seeker, nobody deserves to be treated like this. And even having the neck to suggest separating people from their mothers. How dare you? Hello and welcome back to I Foresee Trouble. It's been a while since we've all been together here in the studio, uh, so there's a fair bit to get through. Um, welcome back. <laughs> Well, now, first of all, we should explain that it, it wasn't our fault. We actually missed two podcasts because we literally couldn't get a studio. But it was partly our fault yeah, for because, not because for we, not, yeah, we yeah, actually yeah, didn't yeah, book yeah. it in time. Mm. And we've been very busy and um, it was just an oversight on both weeks. And then, which is actually the first time it ever happened. And now it's happened, it happened two weeks in a row. Yeah. It had so never we happened couldn't before. make it a third or that would have yeah. been No, doomed. so we actually booked it uh, last week for this week. So yeah. we weren't going to get cut out again. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And little did we know it would be taking place on the historic day when the president of Ukraine would you know, grant us his presence, dear God. Bless, no blessed talk, us with his presence. Blessed mm -hmm. us with his presence. Graced God us with his presence. That was the word us, I was Lord, looking for. Yeah. Harm. yeah. Well, we've got a couple of other things we're going to talk about first. <laughs> more important than him. Yeah. A few other things, just so that we don't get too stuck in that. Kira um, uh, engages in delayed satisfaction. That's why she's keeping Zelensky till later. <laughs> no, I think there's just more important things on the world stage, stage than his little Oscar performance this morning. Yeah, well, the, the, the big thing in the last week has been the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. Huge numbers dead there, like a humanitarian disaster on, a, on an imaginable scale. Oh, look, at, I mean, it's, it's horrific. And um, you know, as always in these cases, um, the early numbers don't reflect the reality and um, it gets worse and worse as the days goes on. But not only that, but um, an awful lot of people have died and an awful lot of people are injured, but uh, millions more will be affected by uh, the impact of the earthquake. Um, now, you can't stop an earthquake happening, uh, but you can prepare uh, as well as you can for it. And in the less affluent countries, um, their capacity to prepare well um, for earthquakes is not as strong as the better off countries and that, that and that this when, when the earthquake happens this becomes very obvious buildings fall easier than they should because they're not built as well as they could be but it costs a lot more money to build them i mean just from a, a construction point of view uh if you want to build uh against the impact of an earthquake uh, you really have to pile the building you've got to go down to the, you literally sit the building on the bedrock that's a very expensive business we do it in dublin they do it in the west coast of America where they have earthquakes. And uh, if you had an earthquake today uh, in California, uh, you wouldn't have the devastation that they would have had in the past because they prepare for it, right? And uh, countries like Turkey and Syria um, haven't had the capacity to do that, obviously, right? But then on top of that, uh, uh, 
Syria also has the impact of the sanctions. Uh, and as we keep pointing out, given that they're not, they don't have the blessing of the UN, these are illegal sanctions. Um, the West went for regime change uh, many years ago in Syria to get rid of Assad and uh, they haven't succeeded in doing it, uh, but the country has been pauperized. There's huge problems there already and now the problems are uh, been multiplied with the earthquake. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things about it. I mean, first of all, the horror of the earthquake. We know now at least 16,000 people have died. Uh, the pictures, the cold, the horror that there are people buried under rubble and other people listening to them screaming for help and not being able to do anything. And then the perishing, just cold that would kill you. Um, hampering operations as well. It's, you know, these are people who got up for work like any other morning and then their whole world and everything turns on its head. I mean, it's utterly devastating. And then you see, well, what's the response of the international community? And on the one hand, we hear, oh, my God, we have to get humanitarian aid. We have to get a couple of billion in. You know, the there's a couple of things about it. One is the scale of the response is minuscule compared to the amount they're spending on arms in Ukraine, the desperate need to get billions in there to help. The politicisation of the aid in that there has been a huge turnaround, again, not enough of aid to Turkey from the European Union, but less so in terms of aid to Syria, who probably need it more because of the devastation in uh, the country. And uh, yeah, it's it's heartening to see now there are a number of NGOs on the ground out there now who are saying and leading a campaign to have the sanctions at least partially lifted. Now, we're against the sanctions full stop, but at least these people have recognised that the sanctions are actually contributing. They were always killing people. And Elena Duhan, the UN Special Rapporteur in this area, was very clear after her visit to Syria in the late, late last year that the sanctions were already killing people for lack of food and medicine, but against the backdrop of a humanitarian crisis where you can't access them with aid and food is utterly disgraceful and of course there's a lot of propaganda around it oh we can't get that aid in it'll be used by the Assad government or the Assad regime as they would say which is just utterly ridiculous um, and that's going against sort of international best practice you don't do that or humanitarian crisis it doesn't matter where it is you respond and you get the aid in apart from it being distortion of reality anyway yeah I mean there's actually talk of money going to Idlib uh, where the jihadists, um, I don't know if people remember now, but uh, when the Syrian government uh, gradually took back uh, over two thirds of the country, they literally gave uh, the jihadist fighters the option of fighting to the death or get bussed to Idlib. And it, it turned out there's about 200,000 in Idlib uh, that had been working with the jihadists, that had the support of the Americans and the Israelis. And the Europeans are actually talking about giving money to Idlib and not to the government. So obviously it means some people, the people in Idlib uh, will access humanitarian aid, but it means that uh, there won't be aid for the others. Uh, now, maybe hopefully uh, common sense will prevail and decency and that that won't happen, that that uh, anyone that needs help will get some. But just to put things in perspective, um, the World Food Programme, um, are, I've been screaming in the last couple of years about Afghanistan, about not getting enough help to f keep people uh, in food, right? And 
for this year, for example, 2023, they say they require 2.2 billion to deliver emergency food, uh, nutrition and livelihood support to those in need, and they're short 1 billion. So they're, they're, they're getting 1.2 at the, at the moment and they're looking for another billion and it's not coming. And as Claire pointed out, uh, the Americans have given over 100 billion to keep a war going in Ukraine and uh, the EU, uh, uh, the commissioner, Han, Hans, uh, he actually boasted in the last plenary in Strasbourg that the EU now has now spent over 50 billion uh, on Ukraine. And so we can find astronomical money to keep a war going, but we can't find the money to feed the poor in Afghanistan, despite the fact that the US and the NATO countries spent 20 years destroying it. And, uh, yeah, they spent hundreds of millions every week in, in Afghanistan. It was just absolutely crazy. And we did get the chance at the last plenary to highlight this strongly. And one of the saddest things for me is that every time we have a plenary and we get the chance to sort of say to the EU, look at the double standards, can you do something for Afghanistan? We are met with an avalanche of a response from Afghans who are all over the world, who are desperately suffering, even the people. And we had met a bunch of Hazaras in, and they're the Shiite minority in Afghanistan. They had escaped to Pakistan. We met them in Pakistan and the visas are due to expire there for them. So they're faced with the choice of having to go back to Afghanistan, even though that isn't safe for them and there's no future for them there. But Pakistan itself can't cope because it's struggling in the aftermath of uh, a, an environmental disaster, all the floods and all of this. And the EU sits idly by and kind of pretends that, well, you know, I mean, some of the MEPs were so off their head in that debate. I mean, one fella said, well, now what we need to do to deal with Afghanistan, now this is, an earlier discussion having said, put up the borders, build walls to keep migrants out. One person's solution was, well, we'll give humanitarian visas to all of the women and girls in Afghanistan, which is about 15 million. Um, and they can all come to Europe, which is just not another fellow's solution was, well, we'll, we'll, we'll reduce the amount of drug consumption in Europe. Uh, and that'll take revenue away from the Taliban. Now, the production of opium has actually gone down under the Taliban Dramatic. anyway. It's only about 10% of what Don't agree was. with it, right, compared to when the Americans and the government were there. These aren't solutions. Even Human Rights Watch, who are a really conservative organisation that we would have a lot of problems with, have said the education, the health and the humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan will not be addressed unless they deal with the Taliban. And that doesn't mean saying the Taliban are great or that you support them or that you even flip and recognise them. But you have to recognise that the reality that they are there and they are the ones on the ground and you will not solve the problems for the people unless you kind of link in with them. And by linking in with them, you have some chance of improving their behaviour and getting some change out of them. Because by ignoring them and by continuing to sanction them, we've got the result which we have got which we've got, which the humanitarian crisis continues and the situation for women and girls and ethnic minorities like the Hazaras is getting worse and worse because the extremists in the Taliban and the other terrorists are, are getting worse because they're saying, well, sure, we're getting nothing out of this. We might as well go hardline and go all out. Uh, it's, it's, it's absolutely shocking. I mean, for years, uh, the EU has argued uh, that engaging with some of these these states that don't necessarily uh, meet our standards like for example I mean Saudi the Saudi Arabia cuts cut half more heads uh, every month than any country on, on earth 
uh, but we, we're, we're still prepared to engage with them to try and make them better. Now, the Americans sat down with the Taliban in Doha and done a deal with them and pulled out. And then, the, obviously, they sanctioned them then. Now, the, the, the Taliban are a horror scene and it's horrific, uh, the things that they've been doing, uh, especially around women's rights and access to education and whatever, right? I mean, and, and to work. It's just an absolute disaster. Uh, but as Claire says, uh, they're in power now the Americans sat down with them in Doha. Mm. They're in power, and now they're saying, "Oh, we we we're, we're going to freeze the money that the that the, the Afghan state owns, and they can't have it because we don't like the Taliban." Well, uh, we don't like them either, but you have to work with them because they're in power, and we're, you shouldn't be prepared to let millions die of hunger because you don't like the Taliban. Mm. It's like they're nearly punishing the Afghan people for the fact that the US lost the war. That's that's what it appears like, really, you know, absolutely horrific. Well, from one war to another, um, it, maybe it's now time to talk about Zelensky's visit to the parliament today. What what was he saying? Look, uh, well, absolutely nothing. And I mean, in some ways it was laughable if the tragedy of the continual war in Ukraine and the fact that we're nearly a year in, that thousands of people have died of ordinary people, tens of thousands of military people, millions of people displaced um, and the country in absolute ruins. And this fellow comes and it was like a night at the Oscars at the European Parliament. It would be laughable if the issues weren't so serious. I mean, it was beyond embarrassing, the conduct of the European Parliament and much of its staff. I mean, we literally had little ropes you know, like to keep the crowd back like you'd see at the Oscars. And I'm not joking, there were hundreds of staff kind of hanging from the, the balconies to try and have a look at all. I'm surprised nobody fell over the balcony trying to get a look. But then he kind of comes in and the MEPs, I mean, decked out with their little scarves in yellow and blue and their little dresses and stuff. And they clapping away like little flipping penguins. I mean, it was just appalling. I can honestly say that the man said nothing. He talked about, thank you, thank you uh, for giving us, we will prevail, Ukraine uh, and the EU, we are Europe. Not very good on geography. There's a lot more to Europe than that. Um, and just, uh, you know, thanks for sending us the weapons and the military thing. We need more. We will be part of the EU family. And then he must have said European values or European way of life a good 17, 18 times. But he spoke. He kept us waiting for an hour. He spoke for 15 minutes. And I can honestly say he said nothing. Nothing. It was claptrap. And, and we're talking about claptrap, right? One of the most, I mean, it was actually comical that at, on three or four occasions he's, he said something and then he, he clapped himself so that everyone would start clapping. It was unbelievable. It's obviously something he learned as a comedian, you know, mm. uh, to get the crowd going. Now, now, now is the time to clap. He did that. I mean, it was unbelievable. And all, of course the MEPs, like, like, like penguins, right, <laughs> just joined in and when they were told, like... Now is the time to clap, lads. Away you go. And I mean, look, we, we, we shouldn't be laughing because, well, you can't help it in that circumstance. But this is incredible when you think as we were sitting there and this spectacle was unrolling, there were probably, inevitably, there were people dying in Ukraine and not a single word being put forward to end that horror. All it was was we will prevail, we will win, and that's just not realistic. And anybody who has 
any serious analysis on this knows that's not realistic. And, you know, for a year now, Europe and the rest of the world has been hooshing in all the military hardware. Countries like Germany have crossed red lines by sending the Leopard weapons, uh, tanks in. My God, you're only going, all they're doing is making sure it keeps going enough that it doesn't provoke mm. Russia to go too much further, you know. Um, it's it's just, I, well, and I, I do mean, think, I, I, why don't they go? Like, yeah. you know, it's what yeah. we always say. You see all these people in suits clapping away like penguins. Get over there yourself if you think there's a military solution to this. If you think that tanks save lives, they don't. They kill people. Guns kill people. And it's Ukrainians and, and some ordinary Russians who are getting killed. Out. So if you think it's that good, get over there yourself and do it. It's really awful. Yeah, yeah. the gap between the, like everyone dressed in blue and yellow in the parliament and people actually dying on a battlefield or in a missile attack is yeah. such a... No, I mean, and listen, people should keep in mind all the time that war is always stupid and ugly and both sides behave abysmally in it and people should remember that only the poor people die in war, right? The rich don't go to war to fight at, at, at the front line, mm. right? They send the poor people. The underprivileged, Russians underprivileged Ukrainians and the Ukrainians are dying in bigger numbers than anyone and people seem to be happy to fucking fight to fight Russia down to the last Ukrainian uh, it's it's just horrific and the country has been destroyed and I should add as well I mean when we were discussing this in the plenary uh, in Strasbourg two weeks ago right uh, we got a chance to, to discuss the issue and we were pointing out that Zelensky has now banned 12 opposition parties and he has used the war to carry through anti-democratic labour reforms and the International Trade Union Confederation which uh, represents over 200 million people, workers worldwide they came out, the General Secretary came out and he said it is grotesque that Ukrainian workers who defend the country and care for the injured, sick and displaced are now being attacked by their own parliament because the, the workers' rights have been completely eroded and the place has been sold off. Uh, they're they're privatising public services. The place has been sold off to Western vultures. Um, it's just horrific. And the EU now wants to fast-track EU uh, Ukraine membership of the EU. I tell you, I don't, this, this is irrational, right? Uh, I have no problem with Ukraine joining the EU but it has to be done on the conditions the EU have all, has always had on accession. And a certain criteria has to be met. And if you don't, if you, if, if, I mean, Ukraine is a basket case. And as the European Court of Auditors pointed out only five months before the war started, it was one of the most corrupt countries in Europe. And I mean, if you bring them in in its present state, if they're brought into the EU in the next three years, right, it is going to have an incredible impact on the rest of Europe. And all every it'll have a, it'll impact on everybody living in the present European Union. Yeah, and I actually don't think that, and I don't think that will happen. I mean, I think there's no doubt that they will try and accelerate its membership, and they're playing all the mood music that we're going to fast track. But I actually thought what was interesting in the EU uh, Ukraine summit, the first one when they all went over to Ukraine last week. 
Um, the interesting thing about it was actually they were much more dampening down the idea of them joining in a hurry. And it struck me that in the vote in the parliament last year, when we voted against the idea at uh, that motion, which contained a call for Ukraine to join the EU. And we were pilloried in the Irish media for doing that. And we said, we're not against Ukraine joining. It's just, it's not going to happen. Uh, you're just leading them on and it's just egging on a conflict kind of thing. And here we are a year later where the European Union is dampened down the prospects of them joining in a hurry. And no one in the media says, well, hang on a minute, Claire and Mick were right last year. Uh, that's what they said. Instead, they go as if this was the EU's position all along, which it hasn't been like. This is just, if we had a good media, they'd be pointing out that stuff. Yeah, but you should, you should, it needs to be noted that uh, I'm still at the, at the Security and Defence Committee and the Foreign Affairs Committee. I see MEPs getting up one after the other that... Uh, we should try and get Ukraine into the EU uh, within two years and at worst three. Mm. They're standing up and saying that this week. Oh, no, God, week. they are, but sure. I mean, the no, MEPs. What? The, I said a lot of them the MEPs are mad out. It's not today or tomorrow. We learned yeah. that. These, they're extremists, but this is another thing. I mean, you're totally right. The EU member, members, the majority of them are extremists, even in terms of the European Council and the Commission. A lot of them are completely out there, but nobody in the media calls them out when they come up with their ridiculous motions. If we vote against them, we're the heretics, but actually it's their view that's extreme. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's worrying times. Well, it's incredible because I, I managed to, I was at a, invited to speak at an event on peace in Europe in Berlin this week and just... All over the city, there was graffiti, nicked Unser Krieg, which means not our war. I found it really striking that the posters were, or not posters, graffiti everywhere and stop war. There's definitely a growing anti-war movement now. There's demonstrations in London. Uh, on the anniversary, there's events taking place in Portugal. We've had big uh, opposition in Italy. And I think the time is coming when the silent majority of Europe who are anti-war, who want peace, have to be silent no more. They have to get up and start demanding that their governments work for peace and stop yeah. fueling the conflict, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, there was... Um, I got a chance as well uh, in, in the plenary that last day uh, to actually talk about political, repre- political repression in Russia and Ukraine because it's actually pretty similar in both countries. Mm. And... Uh, Communist, peace activists, progressive forces uh, in both Ukraine and Russia uh, are clamped down on big time. Uh, but when the Russians do it, it's a travesty. And so it is. I mean, uh, there's no way. Is, I mean, the manner in which Russia is run is rotten to the core as well. And uh, But when the, when the Russians do it, it's a travesty. But when the Ukrainians do it, they're spreading democracy and representing European values. I mean, Jesus, the, the level of inconsistency in our approach to these subjects uh, is mind-numbing. Well, it is. And I mean, he mentioned European way of life and European values so often. And it is interesting that we got to raise the case of Alfredo Cospito as well, the Italian anarchist who's in prison uh, on a hunger strike, likely to die. He's lost over 40 kilos. uh, And he is objecting to the uh, Quarantuno Beast, which is basically a prison regime that allows 
human rights to be waived. And it was brought in for the mafia and people might well say, well, fair enough, but there can't be a fair enough. Either there's, you know, international laws and regulation or there isn't. And Italy has been found in breach of these um, on numerous occasions. And it's just not good enough that we have two standards. The law is the law and it should apply to all member states. The idea that there's a European ideal out there certainly doesn't exist. That really links into another topic you wanted to discuss I think this week kind of international organisations and their independence there's a few different topics where that's overlapped Yeah I mean obviously um, there's been a, a few different reports out lately and uh, one that we, we need to come back to because we're obviously doing a lot of work on it is um, there's be, there's um, a new uh, report on the alleged chemical attack in Douma in Syria uh, by the OPCW uh, it's very much uh, it's a big, long report, very detailed, and it's very much uh, in reaction uh, to the whistleblowers that uh, that reveals that the, the very first report uh, was interfered with and tampered with because uh, the US, France and the UK didn't like it. But, I mean, that's a subject for another day because what we are doing a lot of work on that and uh, we're trying uh, to make sense of it all. But the most important thing for us is... Uh, rather than just attributing blame for who did this and who did that, um, we're very eager that the OPCW becomes a a, a strong, independent international organisation again because it's, it's a really vital organisation. Uh, it's, it's the organisation for the prevention of the use of chemical weapons and uh, it's, it's, uh, it, it's for it to be healthy and strong and independent is really vital uh, to the international scene. But you mentioned international bodies. I mean, uh, likewise, uh, it's very important that the UN Charter is respected, that uh, it's very important that the UN uh, is, is allowed to behave in an independent manner. And uh, there's a, there was an, another investigation recently, uh, Claire, you might want to talk about about the, the, M7, the M17, was this? Yeah, they, that was the, the civilian... Um airline that got uh, shot down over Ukraine in 2014 uh, which killed hundreds of people and I mean I think what we have and let's remember that there were 43 people killed in in Douma whatever happened to them uh, and having read the report that came out last week I still would have a lot of questions about what went on there but the biggest issue really is is that horrible things happen in the world on the international arena and there has to be international bodies there free from bias and interference by the big powers that are capable of doing scientific work and finding out what happened in order to bring justice to the victims without geopoliticizing it and um, making it, it a weapon in political games. You know, So the MH17 analysis I just saw, I haven't fully studied it. It came out yesterday and they were saying, oh, we can say that Putin was involved yeah, now we think there were, you know, there had been three Russians and a Ukrainian are on trial for this. There, Three of them are on the run anyway. Uh, some of them were um, separatists from the Donbass area and a Ukrainian citizen. And there were, no, no, we know that they had to get the OK from Russia, that Russia gave the code. But we haven't got enough evidence to convict them, but we leave it out there. A bit like the OPCW. Now, there's reasonable grounds to say it's the Syrian uh, authorities, but there's still a lot of issues there. So... When there's questioning behind it, and there is, because, well, 
you know, there have been examples given of where the US in particular has used its weight to uh, interfere with scientific investigations. That's not on. So we need to look at how we inoculate these international organisations from such controversies so that everybody can have confidence in them. Because it's clearly the case now that the OPCW isn't working. A number of member states have objected to the way it's conducting itself. But the UN itself has huge problems now. The world would be so much of a better place if you had an independent association of nations who respected each other equally. But unfortunately, like Animal Farm, not all pigs are equal. And I mean, we use the example of when we went to the Pakistan, the 12th most populous country in the world, how the minister explained to us that at the UN she was bullied by the US to try and switch their votes and vote uh, for the sanctions and that, and they wouldn't do it. But when, if you can do that against a huge country, imagine the bullying that goes on and it, all countries need to be treated equally. You know, we look at the bad example of the International Criminal Court. It's only black leaders in Africa who get tried, but we know there's plenty of war criminals in Europe and the US as well. Yeah, and um, just to bring it all back to uh, the war in Ukraine, uh, it would be wonderful if the UN were powerful enough and independent enough to actually get directly involved and work towards getting people around the negotiating table uh, and looking to stop the fighting, uh, stop, uh, get a cessation of hostilities and get people talking because it's possible. Uh, but... Uh, the the EU the UN uh, just isn't independent and powerful enough to do that, and that's really unfortunate. And it doesn't mean that we give up on the UN. It just means that we've got to make it better again. The same as we've got to make the OPCW better again. Mm. We need these uh, international organisations to be totally independent uh, and free to work on uh, unhindered by from other uh, outside powers, especially the big powers, obviously. And uh, it's still the most, the war is nearly on a year now in Ukraine. And any, even the, the amendments that we put in calling on the EU to explore all options uh, to get people around the negotiating table and to bring diplomacy into play in an effort to stop the war and to find peace. Uh, over 80% of the MEPs are actually voting against it. The EU hasn't done anything uh, to initiate a peace movement or peace talks in any way on this war. And uh, that is incredibly disappointing. Well, I think what's even more, and I mean, we've referenced it and I'll come out more, it's very obvious that Russia and Ukraine had reached a tentative peace agreement or the bones of an agreement last April. Even we wouldn't normally be quoting Israeli authorities on our side, but that the Israeli leaders have come out and said that they had brokered and were involved and aware of that peace agreement. But basically the West didn't have Ukraine's back, wouldn't let Ukraine sit down on that. And clearly Ukraine couldn't reach an agreement without the West having their back. But the West essentially said, no, we need you to keep fighting. And here we are another 10 months on and it's the Ukrainians who are dying. There should be an immediate ar armistice and uh, uh, sitting around on this. And remember we had Boris Johnson uh, flying to Kiev in a hurry uh, to make sure the peace didn't break out because uh, NATO and the US didn't mm. want it at the time. Terrible. It's horrific. Anyway. Yeah. 
Anyway, just before we wrap up, Claire, there was a visitor group, an activist group from Ireland. I know you wanted to just... Yeah, I mean, it's funny, like, it's pity that we missed the last few weeks because we've had a number of really good events in the Parliament that we, our group has been involved in and we've been involved in. I mean, there was a really powerful... Um, photo exhibition by Turkish and Greek activists, anti-war messages and given the conflict between Greece and Turkey, it was a really powerful message that artists would come together in the name of peace through art. And again, at the moment, there's a very graphic display on at the moment of a a war photographer, uh, Greek also, who's dead. Some really shocking photography from wars over the past period, which really, as he said, is to make sure the world can say it didn't know. But we had our own um, event ourselves, our good friends from the Elephant Collective in Ireland, the most powerful bunch of women, of midwives and maternity activists and the partners uh, and families of a number of women who lost their lives in childbirth in Ireland. And we worked really well with this group in Ireland, as some people will know, when we were in the Irish Parliament, to bring in some legislation which meant that in every case of a maternal death, because a maternity and a pregnancy is not being sick, you're just pregnant and women shouldn't die in pregnancy. But sadly, Quite a few women have died in Ireland and the evidence would show a disproportionate number of women of colour. And this is something that has emerged right across Europe as well. So there has to be uh, a reason for that. So we had worked in Ireland. We got the law changed that there had to be a mandatory inquest in all cases of maternal deaths, which was really good because the families had to fight for it previously to try and find out what happened. So the change in law means they don't have to fight for that at least. And hopefully lessons can be learn for the future. There's still teething problems with it, but at least the law is there. And ironically, Francis Fitzgerald was the minister there at the time when we moved it in Ireland, when we started on it. Uh, So we had invited Francis to the event and we invited the chair of the FEM committee, which is the Women's Rights and Gender Equality Committee. And we had a great turnout of Irish MEPs, other MEPs, staff in the parliament and some of the activists. And we had two of the husbands of women who had died, Sean Rowlett, who was a a 10 year veteran. Uh, His wife, Sally, died 10 years ago. Um, He's a veteran of the campaign. Sean was there, but we had uh, a new friend, um, Ayaz, whose wife died in 2020. And he and I'm crying again now, but he there wasn't a dry eye in the house when he gave testimony about how his wife, Nayab, had died giving birth to their first child, their little girl, who he's called Nayab now. There was nothing wrong with her. She had a perfectly normal pregnancy. She went in uh, to hospital and she never came out. And uh, yeah, so he spoke out and talked about her and what needed to be done. And it was really powerful. I mean, so many people, MEPs and everybody afterwards said, wow, what a great event. And the message we were bringing was bringing attention to this issue, but also Ironically, Ireland is the only country that has this law. So we want this built upon across Europe and colleagues across Europe were really impressed by it. And I suppose out of the heartache, the solidarity that was there. I mean, there's other two other deaths since the law was changed. And since we've been here, Geraldine uh, Yang from Cameroon and Geraldine's sister uh, came over as well. A young woman, she was with her sister when she died. It was devastating for her. Another woman, uh, Tatenda Manuka, who also died in indirect provision uh, from Zimbabwe. Uh, last year also. So it's a huge issue, but it was a powerful event, wasn't it? It was amazing. Yeah. And um, 
I was it's, a couple of things just to, before we finish up. Uh, I it's, it is it, it's uh, it's so uh, scary and striking that so many of the women dying uh, in child with childbirth problems today are of color. Uh, they're foreign, and um, this is something that needs to be looked at. Uh, but I also thought it was it was good that uh, Frances Fitzgerald, um, who played a positive role uh, when she was minister, and she helped to bring this in, and it was good that that was acknowledged on the night. Mm. And of course, the hero of the show, as always, Dr. Joe Murphy Lawless, that little powerhouse. Uh, sociologist, justice campaigner and all round good guy uh, brought it all together. Joe had founded the Elephant Collective. It came out of her work with midwives in Trinity College and the death of Bimbo and Anugua at the time when I was in the doll first and the battle to get an inquest for Bimbo. So they're a credible bunch of women. And they even got, they took over the Exe Cafe, which is a cafe here in, in the square in Rue Luxembourg. They had a knitters collective. They were knitting sort of cobwebs and elephants all over the place. Um, 